Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Space Junk, our weekly podcast diving into all things astrophotography, amateur astronomy, the night sky. If you want to know what's going on in the hobby of amateur astronomy, then you are in the right place because Space Junk each week. Tony, my name is Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space, and my co-host Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes is here. Hi, Dustin. Hey, Tony. Uh, we got an exciting one today. We've got Meat Instruments here with us. I know, and not just when you say meat instruments. You've got the meat instrument guys. You've got uh, you've, <laughs> we have we have Victor, we have Victor Aniceto. Uh, he is the president of Mead Instruments. That's all, just the president. Okay? Yeah, no big deal. These and, are these are our neighbors here, so we get to see them uh, pretty often, and we actually get to uh, do quite a bit with them. So um, a good time and good good close friends of OPT. And so, guys, welcome. We got Victor Aniceto and Scott Byram here. Welcome, guys. Thanks, Dustin. Hey. Thanks, Tony. Ah, good. It's good. To, well, thank you guys for taking time out to be on our little podcast here. What are you you're visiting uh, OPT right now, I guess, right? Yes, yes. Uh, well, like I said earlier, we're just shopping for some telescopes and saw this signage outside. It says, telescopes here. Come on in. <laughs> just driving. I know. I had to laugh. <laughs> Just driving around Southern California looking for telescopes, right, Victor? Yeah. I know. Yeah, the president of a telescope company <laughs> driving around well, looking for telescopes. Yeah, I was on my way to San Diego, and then at the freeway, there was this big signage that says, telescopes, this exit. So yeah. I just followed the sign. You know, I'm curious then, what type of telescopes were you shopping for? Yeah, I'm looking for something that's got ACF optics <laughs> on it, and you know, I've I was I was wide open with my options. So. Generally blue, huh? Generally blue. Yeah, you like blue telescopes? Yeah, yeah. I'm a little partial to it. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, all the V telescopes are in fact blue. And uh, they are actually very, they're, they're really great telescopes. That was my go-to telescope for, I mean, literally and, and, and figuratively uh, for many, many years. So I'm a big fan of Mead Instruments uh, telescopes. So, Victor, tell us a little bit about the company. What's Mead Instruments all about? Well, first, uh, thank you for uh, choosing a Mead telescope from what you just said earlier. Um, so uh, we're, we're, we're happy to have you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they're great scopes I got nothing but good things thanks thanks but uh, yeah about Mead Instruments uh, we're we're a very recognized brand in telescopes uh, we got quite a variety of products quite a variety of telescopes wide range of, of price points and as much as we could we'd like to cater to just about uh, you know, entry level on up to uh, professional and advanced uh, applications. And this is all for the amateur astronomy market. Uh, can you give us a sense? And I know, Dustin, you could probably comment on this as well, since you're a retailer in the, in the industry. What's the size of the market, guys? How big is the amateur astronomy market? 
I don't know how you would characterize that. Would it be units of dollars or people? But do you know what I mean? I mean, I'm, I, how big do you think the amateur astronomy market is? And do you have a sense that it's getting bigger or smaller? Sure. So uh, I, I can speak to that a little bit. So the amateur side, so the professional side is obviously much bigger. I mean, you know, you look at some of the things like like SSA, space situational awareness on the pro side. And when you're talking about governments of the world, they can infuse massive, massive dollars into something very quickly. I think in a in a 365 day period, it was, you know, $1.6 billion they infused to just that portion of it. So when you're talking about amateur astronomy, it's kind of difficult because like take yourself, for instance, right? You're an amateur astronomer, but to 99% of the amateur astronomers in the world, you're a professional, Tony. And so mm-hmm. it's hard because the lines get very, very blurred. But if you if you narrow it down to strictly people that are using them in their backyards for fun and no other purpose, the estimates I've always heard have been close to, you know, about $250 million for that market alone globally. Okay, so that's that's pretty big. Victor, do you have a comment on that? Um, uh, yeah, my comment is it's one of those very difficult to determine mm-hmm. um, in, in in dollars or units. Um, here's the thing: uh, what's the definition of an amateur astronomer? Right. right? Um, we should probably start there. That's good. <laughs> <right>. um, <laughs> you know, I've heard before how large, I'm going to go to a different industry. Um, I've heard about how large the birding market is. And and uh, I look at the definition of what a birder is. It's somebody that has seen a bird and said, hey, that's an interesting bird. Or, wow, I'd like to know what the, you know, what bird sounds like that. That already was a definition of a birder. Um, so, if in astronomy, if somebody looked up in the sky and looked at Jupiter or Saturn and said, hey, that's an interesting, you know, I'd like to see that planet even closer, do they become an amateur astronomer? So I see your point. It's yeah. quite general, uh, but, uh, you know, with uh, Dustin can actually uh have more of a of a uh, uh insight to that being he's seen he has he has a uh interaction with a lot of different brands uh most of what i know are what we manufacture and what we sell out you know on a on a yearly basis so yeah and i think you'll find that yeah. to be the answer just in general that I know more than Victor on pretty much everything. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's good. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's what he was getting at, right, Victor? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that is a good. That well, is a good point, though. It is. It's really, really hard to determine, and, and even that number. You know, you say two hundred fifty million. I mean, that's like give or take a hundred million. You know, I mean, it really. It, yeah, the large, there's large air it, bars there. It doesn't yeah. mean anything, you know. All we know is that most. I, I've never met someone where you say, "Hey, are you interested in the night sky?" They're just like, "Absolutely not." No, I have no interest in yeah. the stars. I've never heard that. So, you know, you've got what's yeah. hell no. Get that away from yeah. me. I'm not. I'm not even. Yeah. I don't even want to talk about s- that. You, you offend me, sir. Yeah. So you got <laughs> seven billion people on the planet. Uh, whatever money they've got in their pockets, I'd say that's probably the interest in astronomy, right? I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, it's it's limited by the marketing efforts and you know the accessibility of the hobby more than it is, I think, interest. 
Yeah, I think for me, an amateur astronomer is someone who goes outside and looks up on a real, semi-regular basis, just whether it's, whether it's finding constellations or looking at the planets through a pair of binoculars. You're an amateur astronomer, and you're also an amateur astronomer if you spend $11,000 on a mountain telescope system and an observatory dome or whatever it is. Uh, you're also an amateur astronomer. Yeah. So it's wide-ranging and inclusive, and we've talked about that many times in this podcast, just how you know amazing the people involved in the hobby are. So. Yeah, and even lacking equipment, right? You go outside and you're learning all the constellations. I mean, that that is very much amateur astronomy. So, you got yeah. it. That's right. Yeah. You're learning the night sky. That's that's what amateur astronomy is all about. So, the so let me ask you a little bit about Mead the company then, uh, Victor. As a give us a sense of what you manufacture and and how the sort of the the range of telescopes that you and, and other things that you may be selling, filters or whatever it is, uh, that you're selling at Mead. Give us a sense of what you're doing. Well, for uh, for the astronomy uh, segment, uh, we start from uh, entry-level refractor telescope. Uh, we, have ref- uh, we have reflectors. We also have uh, ACF optics, which is a cataday optic. And uh, it goes... What's, what does that mean? Can you tell us what that means? Cataday optic. Okay. Well, let's see. <laughs> Cataday optic. It's it. You know, in the simplest of terms, it's a it's a compound telescope that uh, utilizes mirrors and uh, corrector plates. That would be a I would say a, a a tweener or a hybrid between a refractor and a reflector, taking the best out of both worlds, combining it into one making it a more compact, portable, and affordable telescope. Yeah, cat. Right, and, and uh, Schmidt-Cassegrains are also a catadioptic, right? Yes, that's correct. And probably, I mean, I'd say that the, especially, you know, the ACF design, it, it's known for its versatility. So portability and versatility is really where it excels because, you know, it's half the size of scopes that would would do the same trick, um, at least at that quality scale. And, um, you know, so it, it, as he said, it's compound telescope. You can get a ton of telescope into a very, very small package using, uh, you know, refractive elements and reflective elements. Okay. I've been in the hobby a long time and I admit that I'm coming back to it after being away for a while, but ACF, I don't know what that means. Uh, it, it, it means advanced coma free. So, oh, so coma free. Yes, yes, coma free. We don't charge for any coma. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad that's free. <laughs> I wouldn't want to pay for that. So that's really good. Yeah. yeah. Coma for those of you who don't know, guys, it's very common in, in these catadioptric design telescopes, whether it's a Richard Creighton or a uh, uh, Schmidt Cassegrain, they're where these you get little. If you look at the edge of the field of view, the edge of the eyepiece field of view, you'll the, the stars, if you have coma, will look like little comets mm-hmm. and uh, little tails on them, even though you're in perfect focus. And it's a it, it's a it's common in designs like this where you have hybrid elements in it. Um, but you're saying you don't have any in yours, well, we don't coma free, we don't. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, that that's uh, I mean optics for us and the advanced coma free is a hallmark for uh, Mead uh, instruments uh, optical systems. We're very well known for that, and uh, I'm I'm confident that it it uh, it outperforms a lot of, uh, of of similar type products out there. 
Yeah, it's something that I think that uh, really, so the the ACF design is what really pushed Mead instruments into the EDU space, the educational space. Um, you know, there, there are a ton we see here going out into schools, universities, um, you know, into the observatories there for students to use. And it's really that coma-free design, I think, that, that really propelled it into being one of the leading telescopes in the EDU space um, because it's a, it's a big deal. It's not an easy thing to accomplish in design to create something, you know, that, that is truly coma free. And, um, you know, once you have that design in such a small package, it definitely, it, it kind of took off and still does. It still does. So would you say that these telescopes, these ACF telescopes are your, are your best sellers? Because um, I'm thinking one of the things that really impressed me that I saw on the mead lineup of telescopes were these light bridge Dobsonians. And I really wanted one of those the minute I saw one because they look amazing and they collapse and they're, they're large, they're large uh, aperture telescopes. And I love Dobsonians anyway. So would your ACF telescopes, would they be more popular than say your light bridge telescopes? Or are they about the same? Um, the uh, the ACF telescopes uh, have all uh, has always been and continues to be our best selling uh, telescopes. It's the telescope most identified with the brand Mead Instruments. Um, we uh, historically uh, we have we have started off the company itself, the brand itself started off with. Uh, small refractors uh, back in 1972, some small refractors. Mm-hmm. Then, I remember that. Yeah, then started selling uh, some accessories, some eyepieces. It was it was a mail order uh, operation at the time. And uh, then started getting into uh, bringing in reflector telescopes and then uh, in, in the early 80s, uh, uh, Mead Instruments ventured into manufacturing uh, their own uh, uh, catadioptric uh, Schmidt-Cassegrain telescopes and took off from there. Now, do you guys uh, – let's talk a little bit about the manufacturing process then. Do you – when you said you started with refractors and you moved up to these uh, Schmidt-Cassegrains and things like that, do, have, do you – where do you manufacture your telescopes? Do you do it there in California or do you do it somewhere else? Currently, we are now manufacturing them in Tijuana, Mexico. Uh, it, used, it used to be in Irvine, California. And then we uh, we switched our operations and moved it to uh, Tijuana. And uh, you know, I wish I could uh, take people on a tour of our factory. It's very impressive. <laughs> uh, it's a very impressive operations. And when 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 people come to visit, they're they're very impressed at the sophistication of the process that that it takes to manufacture our our products. I've actually heard that, yes, from a, a close friend of mine that went down there, and um, he was telling me exactly that. He was saying, you know, it is it is an impressive operation, and I'm excited to get down there at some point. But, um, you know, if you can find me some time, Victor, we'll we'll get down there. Just let the rest of the staff know I need to find some time here. Huh? You got but, it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he was telling me. He said, uh, "What's what's amazing is in the manufacturing." process the sophistication of the uh, 
uh, machinery and the things that it takes to produce a design like this. It's not something that, you know, you would think that being able to produce on that level, it would just be like stamping them out. But he said it's a very, very sophisticated process and one that has just a, a huge amount of uh, quality control checkpoints along the way. Um, and, and I might add, too, that uh, it's also the quality of people that are building our products. We have a lot of longtime employees in our manufacturing, proud of, what they, uh, proud of their work, proud of what they're doing, and uh, very, uh, very cognizant of the fact that uh, we need to continually produce uh, quality uh, products for our consumers. Yeah. So that's one of the things that, you know, when we talk, you're, you're constantly talking both you, Scott and, and Victor, you're both talking about quality control, quality control. Why has that become such a big, um, such a big point of Mead's attention? Why is it something that you're constantly talk, talking about and focused on? Well, thanks. Uh, thanks, Dustin. Um, it's important to me uh, in my uh, in, in my uh, opinion it's important that consumer experience is very important I am big on consumer experience um, I would like for mead to be able to provide customers with a product that they'd be happy with and it, it's something that uh, I intended to change when I first arrived at Mead Instruments. Um, we, it was, there, there were some, uh, at, at that time, when, when I first got there about, I got to Mead about five, six years ago, um, we were challenged on that part. Um, consumer confidence was, was low, I, and I, I've, I've seen uh, talks and reviews out there, and it wasn't good reading for me. Well, that's that's what I wanted. I didn't want to come out and just directly say it because I didn't know how much of a pain point it was. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I'm what I'm asking because I know there was a time, and you still see it in the forums, and um, you know, a lot of that stuff is is obviously really old. I don't know if people recognize that or not. And there's been a huge swing that we've seen in a positive direction, um, especially over the last two years, I'd say two and a half years, it's been a massive change. But um, is that what caused that was that um, that period for Mead where, you know, consumer confidence was very, very low. And there were a lot of uh, quality control issues. Is that what really swung it in that direction? Well, uh, it, it was uh, it was numerous, and uh, like I said, it wasn't it wasn't a good read. And I'm just looking, I'm just reading over it, and I was just thinking, hey, if I was shopping for a telescope and I go around and do some research and I read this, it's a very it's it's quite difficult to to decide on a meat product. So I prioritized that. So I, I, these are the first things I did is prioritize, you know, quality control, uh, number one. And, and we have seen a lot of change out there in, in consumer opinions. Our dealers also have, have told us this uh, starting about three to four years ago. And they said, you know what, I've seen a lot of improvement and uh, you know, every year we've been improving on it. 
Um, and and so, you know, I'm 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 confident that we're we're doing the right things, and we're constantly uh, making sure that hey, uh, everybody has to be on the same page in terms of of quality assurance. So this is something that I do want to talk about because I think that um, you know it's a really it's it's a it's a really great story that Mead has overcome. Uh, some hardship. There have been tough times at Mead, and Scott, I know you were there for pretty much all of it, right? And yeah. then, and then Victor, you came in uh, what five years ago, mm-hmm. six years ago to um, to start to try to really turn this thing around, and and we're seeing that happen. There's so much, obviously, that we're talking about now that uh, that we get to celebrate with Mead, but that hasn't always been the case. I'd like to kind of hear what was that time like, and um, you know. I mean, both of you can kind of speak on this because the change I know had to be had to be a ton of work. But during that period, I mean, what were things like at me? Sure, sure. Well, you know, thanks, thanks for asking. Um, you know, I, I came into Mead, and then I just saw opportunities. We had uh, uh, we had some difficulties at the time, and you know, there was just. Not a lot of people at Mead when I first started there. So yeah, it had been thinned out pretty. You know, I, I wasn't at OPT at the time, but I've heard the stories. Mead had been pretty thinned out at that point. It was, it was, it was thinned out, and so it became a big challenge. Um, so we had, I had to start from, you know, from a from a, a very low count of personnel. You know, there's probably, I don't know, I, it seemed like there was just like 12 people, you know. Right. That's, and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I needed, uh, needed to rebuild the company and uh, to bring on uh, resources. Uh, our warehouse uh, it was, it was empty. There wasn't a lot of product there. I looked at, you know, product availability, there wasn't much, but there's a great demand out there. So uh, over the years, you know, I, I, I built up, I built up the, the staffing, uh, put some quality people, dedicated people that want to be part of a rebuilding, rebuilding the company. And and you, one of the first things we had to do, uh, as I mentioned earlier, was just pay attention at the uh, quality control and product availability, and and we started from there. and And it's a it's a long time uh, to you know it's 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 a long process. Let me just put it that way. What uh, felt like. What, what what five years felt like it's been ten years already, just because of so many things I've had to do to make some changes. Mm-hmm. Then doing some uh, focusing on on product development—that's another thing. So we had to uh, we had to really uh, tighten the belts, make sure we put the uh, resources in the right places. And now we're we're back, and we're we're really uh, taking the benefit, you know, seeing the benefits of that. The, I, I tell you, the first uh, astronomy event that I went to uh, back in 2014, I went to a uh, astronomy event, and a lot of people would just come up to me and they'd say, 
Oh, you know, it's great to see you here. I was so worried about you guys. You know, are you guys, are you guys okay? This was in 2014. But now, you know, like in 2016, 2017, people come around. There would be no more talks of that. People are just happy to see us. And they're just saying, hey, you know, you, I'd like to see you come up with a, uh, with a, a German equatorial mount that uh, is going to handle some. I mean, people are now talking about what they want to see from us. They, are, they tell me, hey, I'm a Mead fan. I would not buy anything other than mead, but please give us something, you know. So, and here we are. It's a culmination of work over the last uh, couple of years, and uh, we're continuing to uh, develop product uh, as we speak. I think it's a fascinating story. And, you know, from the business side of it, I mean, you're looking at a company that has a ton of needs. Right. I mean, you, you really have your back against the wall because you don't have the staffing you need. You have a reputation that's in decline because you're lacking the resources to do the things that are required of you. You can't innovate for all those same reasons. And you've got one thing going for you, and that's that customer loyalty and the demand in the industry. That is what it seems like, at least from the outside, watching it unfold, you know, and, and seeing you come out, you know, triumphant on the other side, it seems like that only happens with that loyal following with people that were exactly like you're talking about mead instruments, people that really believed in the brand, because otherwise there was a, there was a ton of reason to have doubt and concern. And as you said, I mean, the, the company had really been thinned out. There was nothing there and you guys were fighting for your life at one point, and now you're celebrating, you know, probably the biggest year of innovation coming out of meat ever, uh, which is a huge swing and not a long time period. But I just, uh, I think it's, it's fascinating that that can happen and that it only happens when customers decide that it should, because without their loyalty, there's no way that meat comes out of that. Yeah. And, uh, and we're thankful for that. We're thankful for the people that have stuck with us uh, all these years, and you know, we we wanted to let them know that we hear them. And are you doing? Uh, you said earlier you're doing this from a plant in Mexico. Is that all of your telescopes, including the refractors and Dobsonians? Uh, no. Or do you? Is okay. So the the ACF class telescopes are being built there. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. The ACF class okay. telescopes and also our solar products like the Coronados. Those are all manufactured in Mexico. For for one thing, the weather conditions there are so much better. Um, and uh, that's one of the things, one of the requirements as our tele telescope manufacturer is you're in a place wherein you can test product, you star test product, you solar test products. And, you know, unfortunately, we are at the mercy of the weather whenever we put product out there. That's probably one of the things that a lot of people don't don't understand or, or, or don't realize is that if you have about a week's worth of rain, that means you don't get a week's worth of product uh, getting out, out of uh, manufacturing. 
You know, I so when I got into the hobby, I didn't realize I was interested in a solar telescope. I didn't even know that you could image through them. I just wanted one to see the sun, mainly because I'd always been told don't look at the sun, and I felt like here's a chance to to do something, break the rules, right? <laughs> don't uh, tell Dustin he can't. Yeah, do yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I wanted a I wanted a solar telescope, and uh, obviously, if you if you start googling solar telescopes, Coronado is one of the first things that's going to pop up. It's it's one of the leading solar telescopes brand telescope brands out there. And um, I had no idea at the time that it was owned by Mead Instruments. It wasn't until actually that uh, I came to OPT that I even realized that Mead owned a solar company as well. Yeah, and 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 you know that's 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 on us <laughs> to 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 have to market it that way. But yes, Coronado and Mead are uh, you know owned by you know uh, it's it's the same. Same company. So uh, one of the topics I wanted to discuss with you was innovation. And I just want to say that my experience and the, and the Coronado Solar Telescope, the personal solar telescope, is exactly the kind of innovation that I think changed the hobby in a huge way. Because in the past, the before the Coronado came out, in order to look at the sun in H-alpha, which is 65-62 angstroms, in order to see that kind of level of detail on the sun you needed to buy a filter from daystar this was this was years ago 70s and 80s and that filter was an edelon filter just like the one in in uh the, the pst but it was it needed to be uh temperature controlled it was very sensitive to temperature shifts because it would shift out of the wavelength that thing cost almost three thousand dollars and that was in 1970s money and uh, I uh, somehow I got my hands on one and I put it on the back of a telescope and saw the sun in H alpha. You had to put a pre-filter over the over the telescope to, to get rid of most of the light. And then the red light came through and what was left was the sun in H alpha at about a, a half an angstrom. And then so fast forward a couple of decades, I'm looking through. Uh, my this is like in the I think the mid 2000s I'm looking uh, at at through telescopes and I see this Coronado PST that not only is it not temperature controlled but it has a half angstrom bandwidth now for those of you who don't know for a solar telescope it's all about that bandpass because the narrower it is if it's a quarter angstrom half angstrom one angstrom whatever it is you see more detail on the sun at at shorter band passes or narrower band passes. So for example, if you're looking at the sun and you want to see filament eruptions, a narrow filter will let you see that filament in fine contrast, whereas a one and a half or two angstrom filter might not. And here it is, Coronado. And not only that, how much is it? Well, I bought one. And at the time I bought one in the, in the mid 2000s, it was like 600 bucks, if I recall, maybe 500 bucks. I couldn't believe it. It was like, here is an Edelon filter for looking at the sun for a few hundred dollars that before was thousands. So that innovation is very exciting to me. Can you tell us the story of that just a little bit about how the Coronado became a telescope? Well, Because it's all about the filter. Well, right. The, the, the Edelon itself is something that, you know, is integrated into a 40 millimeter refracting telescope and all the components that go into that are all built into the, to the body of the PST. Uh, and it makes it for a very portable, uh, easy to set up telescope. How do you get that temperature stability out of it? Because you know, if you if it, if it gets too hot, it, it, the bandpass shifts out, it goes out of the, the bandpass you want in H alpha. 
How do you keep it nice and stable? But that's always been a question of mine because before, because they used to be lines, they would they would they would flex and the the the, the optical elements would would get further apart, meaning that the the filtering was was more mm-hmm. too broad to see anything. Right. So to keep it nice and narrow, you needed to keep it at a certain temperature. Yeah, it, it's so. uh, actually the, the the simple answer to that is it only passes only a very very minute percentage of solar energy. And that's why it doesn't it doesn't get too hot inside. I know what you're saying, but that's the fact of the matter is it it only passes not even one percent, not even a half percent of of solar energy. So that's keeping the temperature stable. Yeah, that that was my favorite telescope. It still is. I mean, it still is one of my favorite telescopes. I take out all the time and and look at the sun with. So it's really, uh, I think, an innovative, revolutionary telescope in that particular field of amateur astronomy. Well, I think it's the I price point, right? I mean, the price point to be able to, oh yeah, because aperture's not. It's not as important for what we're talking about right now. You got this tiny telescope, but because you're looking at such a bright object, I mean, you're looking at the brightest object, (laughs) you know? Yeah, photons aren't a problem. Yeah, photons (laughs) are not a problem. You don't need a huge bucket. So, I mean, when you're talking about, it's not even just under a thousand. I mean, it's 650 bucks, at least right now on sale, 688, um, you know, for the 40 millimeter scope. It's like, that is, that's a, that's a big deal. I mean, that's not huge investment for something that you can throw in a backpack and look at the sun with in detail, like you're talking about. Yeah. And don't forget, folks, there's a transit of Mercury coming up later this year. I think it's later this year that this would be ideal for. And I'm all ready. I'm ready to go for this. I can't wait to see that. So, um, well, on the subject of innovation, then what other areas in the telescope realm uh, are you guys working on and, and and maybe give us a sense of the the big innovative ideas that you've seen in the hobby and maybe give us a glimpse into the future well uh first of all i just wanted to point out um this year just this past uh, uh 2018 we have launched uh, uh the most uh products uh in 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 like the last seven or eight years, um, we have geared our our product introduction and uh, for imaging, for the imaging market, and uh, we also launched products that we know are highly uh, highly in demand, highly coveted by the uh, general astronomy market. We've we've uh, introduced uh, uh, deep sky imager, and then we also introduced the um, uh, Solar Max three ninety. Uh, it's it's a beautiful instrument. Uh, it it's it's shiny gold uh, looks to it, and it's a ninety millimeter uh, uh, solar telescope. That was also introduced this year. And then last but not least, we introduced the LX85 and LX65, which is, you know, the, these are imaging. Uh, well, the LX85 is an imaging type uh, German equatorial uh, telescope system that's great for um, imagers. And also the LX65, which is a great uh, visual instrument that is 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 a very good price point and and they're they're very uh, it's got a stable mount to it that one that i just mentioned the lx65 has a, a a dual saddle on it so that you can use the main telescope that it comes with 
And also you can put another uh, secondary scope like a refractor. So you can do uh, dual, um, dual viewing on it. It's great for outreach so that you can have two people looking through the telescope at the same time. When I always, when I talk to Dustin about innovations, he's, he's very keen to tell about the uh, detectors and the cameras that have come up, uh, you know, they've come along over the, over the past few years. Would you agree that the, that some of the bigger innovations would be in some of the imaging um, tell us the cameras that are out there? Yes, I, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, it's, it's a growing segment uh, in astronomy and the amateur market. I mean, there have been a lot of people that have bought telescopes over the years, but at that time, it's it's kind of specialized to actually do some imaging. Uh, there's CCD imaging, uh, but at that time, CCD cameras, I would say about 15, 20 years ago, is about maybe five, $6,000 uh, to get into it. That's kind of like the right. entry-level device. And that was with pretty pretty basic instrument. I mean, that was not a good camera at five or $6,000. So it was very expensive to get very little. Right. And so what's, so what's it like now? What's the, for example, maybe give, tell us a little bit about the deep sky camera you, were, you mentioned earlier. What's it, what are some of the details on that? Well, the deep sky imager camera is a, it's a 16 megapixel CMOS sensor. Yeah, and it's a it's a Panasonic sensor, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So super high quantum efficiency. This is one that um, I think it's actually at this point the only color version of this sensor out, which we've seen color. We talked about this a couple podcasts ago, Tony. But co yeah. color sensors are back on the rise. You know, with a lot of the new filters that are out, like the triad filter, where people can throw a you know a multi band pass narrow band filter in front of a color sensor and see nebulae in real time in color, which makes you the king of any star party you ever go to. Um, you know, um, it's, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's something that, you know, for a long time, I think monochrome cameras have dominated amateur astronomy, but we're really starting to see a swing back the other direction because, you know, it's always a balance between, uh, you know, signal, like how can I get the best possible quality against how can I get this image quickly and simply and simple is starting to win out because the quality is coming up so fast. Like with this, um, like th with this camera that Mead put out this year, uh, you know, you can get this for under a thousand dollars and be, you know, right there alongside, you know, what people, you know, a few years ago were spending five, $6,000 for that's a big deal. And I think it gets more people engaged because they can uh, get results without, you know, having to be, you know, a complete expert in terms of how to use a filter wheel and how to combine, uh, you know, different frames. And it can get success a lot easier. And we just to remind people when we talk, maybe they didn't hear the podcast where Dustin and I talked about this. But this, when you say a 16 megapixel camera and it's a CMOS detector, CMOS detectors differ from CCDs in that they have these lenses, as 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 uh, Dustin was saying in that other podcast. They have RGB filters over it over their own set of pixels. So when you say 16 megapixels, do you mean 16,000? 
pic- 16 million pixels in each color? No. Or total no. with different yeah. lenses? And that's what separates color and uh, monochrome more than it is C- uh, CCD and CMOS. But yeah, because you can get color on either version. But um, yeah, 16 megapixels, that's really high resolution. You know, most astronomy cameras, actually the most popular astronomy camera, and the one a lot of my images have come um come out on you know instagram and the other the other channels i post to those are eight megapixels so this thing is twice the resolution of a lot of the the um pictures i've posted and i mean you can print this huge so to have 16 megapixels in a color camera and you can get it monochrome but i think a lot of people are going the color route to get 16 megapixels i mean that's something that you know it wasn't that long ago would have been extremely expensive and now you know it's under a thousand dollars yeah so you know one of the things are so why why a mead ccd camera why a mead imaging camera right a lot of people are also they're brand loyal there are a lot of people that have that that have owned a mead love their mead and they want uh, a mead camera to go along with their telescope so in in uh, again in the past it's uh uh, you take film camera, you know, but uh, I'm going to be dating myself if I talk about film camera, so I'm not going to talk about that. But. What is a film camera? Yeah, you know. <laughs> oh, come on now, everybody. Yeah. It wasn't that long ago. <laughs> what is that? Yeah, well. 2415 pan film, right, Victor? Huh? Hyper huh? sensitized. Hyper sensitized. Oh, that's right. Tri X pan. That's right. Oh. All the way, buddy. Oh. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> Gross. But, but in this day and age. Where's my walker? <laughs> I don't have one yet. But uh, anyway, in this day and age of social media, of sharing, of, of, of image sharing, it's now become a, a, a big part of the community. So even though, let's take, for example, there are NASA photos out there. You can just take a NASA photo and post it, but that's not as interesting as if you actually took the image yourself. There's a sense of achievement if you t- took that photo. And, yep. and that's where, that's where the, uh, I believe, that's where the, the general public is going. And, yeah, uh, and there's a direct connection there too, isn't there? You, you can directly connect with that nebula or that planet or whatever it is you've just imaged. Yes, it's an experience, right? Yeah, you know, there's um, it's it's pretty funny because you're talking about a shareable experience, and uh, you know, with with cameras, I think that's exactly what it is. Maybe not film; that's kind of hard to share, but with. Uh, <laughs> All right, Dustin. <laughs> Let's move along. We get it. <laughs> nothing, but, nothing to see here. But with these digital cameras, I mean, you can even put a screen on the side of your scope, and instead of using an eyepiece showing one person at a time, refocusing for everybody's eyesight in between, you know, you just pop the image right onto the screen, and everybody standing around can see whatever the telescope sees live. That's a huge deal. I mean, that's a very different experience than the traditional star party experience. And these sensors are so good, so low noise and so sensitive that you're going to see, you know, 10, 15 times what your eye could anyway, or more if you start going into long exposure stuff. And so these cameras really are incredible and you can do, a you know, long exposure. I mean, this is, your camera's cooled down to what, minus 40 Delta? I think the Delta's minus 40, something like that. Not so sure, but. 
Yeah. That's a good check of that out. Yeah. So, that Delta T is talking about, I just wanted to find what we're talking about. That Delta T is the difference from ambient temperature. So if you're in a, if you're in a, a 70 degree evening, then Delta T of 40 would, would mean the, the telescope chip is 30 degrees. Right. Right. So yeah, that's, um, you know, you can keep the, the chip nice and frosty, keep all the noise out of the images. And that's, um, that's, you know, that's going to make your images a lot cleaner. It's, it's really a, a pretty cool experience to be able to go out there and, and see this stuff. And I think that's why that shareable nature of imaging is why it's growing so quickly. And, um, you know, it's really why a lot of these, these new products, I think they're so important is it makes this a hobby. That's something that you can share. Okay. Now you guys are making this sound like that imaging now and processing that goes along with it. Cause don't forget, we haven't talked about processing sure. that it's all, it all sounds like you're just using your smartphone. Is it that easy now to image with a telescope? Uh, so yes and no, there are, there's a lot of, uh, so there's a lot of software packages that the pre-processing, all of the stuff that's, you know, in the university side of things is very difficult because it's so, I mean, it's rigorously done to make sure that everything's perfect because the science has to be, you have to have, you know, you can't have any alterations to the data or else you don't know if your science is accurate, but for pretty pictures, you know, you have a program where you just upload all your lights, all your flats, all your darks, you hit one button and it pops out your master file. And so with that master file, I mean, you can, you can kick it over to your cell phone and start stretching it from there. I mean, you can literally do everything else on your cell phone. And so it doesn't have to be super complicated. I mean, I use the Instagram app for 90% of the, um, the editing I do on my photos. And that should tell you, I mean, it, that's not a very complex app. So, and I got to tell you, looking at your photos on Instagram is is incredibly inspiring. I sometimes feel like you know these are these are Hubble quality images. I mean, I don't, I couldn't. If you put two by, if you put a Hubble image next to some of the ones you've taken, Dustin, I don't think I could tell the difference. They're that good. So it's wow. it's you know we and, do. This. And you're telling me, and you're telling me that it's also easy to process these. That's really a another innovation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My images look really good as long as you don't blow them up past Instagram size. <laughs> if, if you hide all the details by making them the size of your thumbnail, then yeah, I mean, they, they look great, but, um, you know, I would have to spend a little more time if it was going to be something that I'd print, print large, but yeah, I mean, I don't spend more than five, 10 minutes editing photos. And I, you know, I put out those videos on, on YouTube under OPTV to, show people that for most people, that's where they're sharing it is through their social media accounts. And that's the size of a cell phone screen. You don't have to be spending five, six hours on a single image. You can do the whole thing in five or six minutes. And that's and that's a good point because in the past, going back to film, it, it takes about two hours to do those exposures. But now you can get exposures to like five minutes and produce the same type of quality and imagery. But and that goes to the quantum efficiency that... Um that Dustin was mentioning earlier. Yes, yes. And and there are different kinds of astroimaging. And one of the things that uh, we haven't touched on are we have cameras that also do planetary and solar imaging. And, and a lot of times when people want to get started into uh, astroimaging, they start with planetary. They start with lunar, lunar uh, images. Those are the ones that you can do first night out you can actually do some really good images of Saturn and Jupiter and actually be able to see, uh, we, we call it the LPIG uh, and LPIG advanced. Those, you could do some processing and you actually see the bands on Jupiter, 
you'll see the Cassini division on Saturn. Uh, you, you can produce quality images you'd be proud of first night out. And what does something like that cost? The LPIG Advanced uh, is about $400 retail, and the uh, uh, LPIG is $200. Both, uh, both imagers, we can, do, we can take these you know, awesome, impressive uh, planetary images, again, first night out. And at the same time, you can, when you advance further on, you can use those same imagers as an auto-guider once you graduate into deep sky imaging. See, this is what I'm talking about. You know, we talk each week, Tony, about the innovation in the industry and how far it's coming. And you like to call it the golden age of astronomy. But mm -hmm. this is this is what I'm talking about. I mean, $200, yeah. $400, and taking images like that, that's, I mean, it, it's hard not to call it that. That's really something that's not a huge investment. Most hobbies are way more expensive than that. You know, you can spend yeah. $400 on a tennis racket, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it really is amazing to think that you're looking at things that are trillions of miles away for under $1,000. You know, that's that's really something. And it's, it really is the golden age of astronomy. And I want to tell a quick story real quick, because last year I went with the, uh, the director of marketing here at OPT. We got an invite from Mead. And if you ever get an invite from Mead to go anywhere where there's dinner involved, go. Like, <laughs> definitely go. I thought I thought you just wanted our company. No, uh, absolutely not. No, I'm just Going kidding. for the food. Yeah, yeah uh, we went for the food, both of us. And, you know, when I asked him and Mark, and I was like, hey, you want to go to this event? They're going to be unveiling their new products. And it was, um, it was a pretty big deal. And, you know, Mead sent us an email, let us know what it was going to be. But there were people from all over the world that came down. And uh, it was close to us. We went up and uh, we thought it was going to be, you know, a handful of products like most manufacturers do. You know, each year there'll be a product or maybe two products that get released. And so we go, there's this really nice place we all, we all meet. There's, I mean, it's a huge chunk of the industry there to see, um, to see what's coming out. And it was an all day thing where we're not only eating this amazing food, I mean, um, the marketing director sitting next to me eating bacon covered in chocolate, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. For a big, uh, a big portion of the day, he probably had like 60 of those things, but it was like, <laughs> it was product after product after product, you know, including this, uh, this deep sky imager we're talking about, but I mean, you guys had the LX65 mount, you had the LX85, the one you were talking about, you can put two telescopes on, right. you had the daub, you had the cameras, you had, I mean, it was just so many different products in a single year. Yes, it was uh, our product development and marketing team were working overdrive. They were working overtime, whatever you call it. Uh, but uh, hats off to them. They did a wonderful job uh, in, in making sure we're able to launch products uh, effectively and impressively. Yeah. So, so we walked out of there that day, both of, them, both of us just kind of in shock, you know, that, you know, we really, I, I really did expect, like, I would have thought, okay, if there's three new products, this is a big year. And there had to be 15 
different things that, that you went over all day. And uh, it was a big presentation. So we walk out and he looks over at me and he's just like, holy shit, man. And I was like, I know they've, they've been busy. And he's like, no, that bacon. <laughs> he, was, he was like, it had chocolate on it, man. Like, yeah. Yeah, it did. It did have chocolate on it. That's, that's, that's innovation, good. right? Yeah. Yeah. That was innovation. Like you talk about innovation. For sure. That's right. For sure. Yeah. But uh, it was a good year for me. Now you all know what we've been up to. So uh, first thing we did was, you know, we wanted to focus on QA, number one. And then number two, we focused on product availability. In the past, if you ordered a mead product, you'd get maybe a lead time of about four or five months. Now that's difficult, you know, when consumers or mead fans want to get a telescope uh, you'd have to wait, uh, you know, quite a long time. So th those are one of the things that we wanted to make sure we address. These are basic things that our Mead customers and Mead fans really want. So now we talk about uh, the uh, uh, now we talk about the innovations part. So that's where we're at. Well, okay. Uh, I have a question about the drives because we, you know, we take the, the optics, uh, uh, have come a long way. You've got coma free, uh, Canada optic telescopes. Now, uh, the imagers are kind of dropping in price and able to do, do color and the processing has become quite easy, but none of this happens without a good mount and a drive system. Describe for us the, the, the kind of drive system that Mead makes the most and, you know, how, how it may have evolved over the last decade or so. Because I'm really interested in, in the drives and the mounts because, to me, that is the heart of the – I mean, okay, the optics are the heart. But the skeleton, the, the frame of the telescope, the strength of the telescope is in the mount and the drive. How sturdy is it? Well, it is important to have a good mount, you know, and, and the optics, yeah, you're right. Those are the, the, uh, what they're known for, but having a good solid mount that is, uh, accurate in terms of its pointing ability, ability to track, uh, periodic error correction. These are all very important parts of a mount. Um, and in terms of, you know, the LX 200, when they first came out in the mid nineties, you know, that was what they were known for was being able to do that long exposure photography and the, the innovation of go-to and being able to locate objects automatically and then track them. Uh, that was all very important to the history of meat instruments. So in terms of, you know, what we're doing today, we're, we're using these, you know, uh, worm gear driven motors to, uh, you know, accurately track and uh, go-to objects uh, using very similar, you know, technology to what we had then. Um, the LX65 mount is a, you know, a very simple, uh, altazimuth mount that will, uh, you know, allow you to, as Victor described earlier, mount two optical tubes and to, you know, easily go to and track objects, you know, uh, using the audio star computer controller. Uh, and, uh, the LX85 is a, is a good go-to German equatorial mount. And that's something that, you know, we are very proud to introduce to the market. The main mount that you have now is, is is a worm gear driven system for most, for most go-tos, but the, is the Alta or is the German equatorial also go-to? Yeah. The, the LX 85 is a full go-to mount. Okay. And how about the, uh, things like 
the processors and the catalogs of objects and things like that. Has that evolved much over the years, or is that is the software pretty much stayed the same? Uh, to a large degree, the catalog sizes haven't changed. You know, we the AutoStar two computer controller for the LX two hundred, the LX six hundred uh, is a hundred thousand object database. The LX sixty five and the LX eighty five, along with our Star Navigator and ETX series, they use the AudioStar computer controller, which is a thirty thousand object catalog. And if we wanted to, of course, these whole all of these computer all these uh, telescopes can be plugged into a computer and controlled externally. That's as well, true. Right? They all they all can be interfaced through a PC or even with uh, you know some uh, iPads and smartphones. We have the Stella Wi-Fi adapter to allow you to connect you know through your your tablet so that you can even control the telescope that way. Really through your tablet? That's cool. Yeah. Oh, that'd be I'd be awesome. Uh, and the is the camera control a separate issue or is it part of the the control unit for the telescope or do you have to do that separately well it is separately we have all the uh, the cameras whether it be the lpig or the dsi4 they come with sky capture software uh and they, they'll also work with other you know uh, third-party applications as well and what about eyepieces do you guys offer i mean, do you, do, i know that you probably ship eyepieces with some of your telescopes but do you guys have another a, a line of eyepieces that uh, that you guys offer as well we do have a full assortment of eyepieces. All the telescopes will come with the standard Series 4000 Superplossel, uh, and you can expand that with other focal length eyepieces. But we also have our HD60 eyepieces, uh, which are you know, a little higher grade eyepiece. And we also have our mega wide and ultra wide angle. And these these are things that you can get over and above once, you, once you've got your telescope. Are those two inch eyepieces the mega wides? The mega wides are inch and a quarter and two inch. The larger, the oh, longer okay. focal length eyepieces are two inch. Okay. And what about coatings on your on your telescope? What do you use for for coatings? In terms of like the advanced coma free telescopes, we have our UHTC, which is ultra high transmission coatings. And these are across all wavelengths. This all for the full visual range. Yes. That is really, uh, I must say, a really good story I, that you've overcome a lot. You know the, the the financial issues and the the quality control, and now you're. It sounds like you're you're looking. You're a strong. You've got a strong foundation. Well, that's what I was going to say. You know, one of the you know the company was founded you know by John Diebel, and one of his philosophies was always you know to do the right thing, to do what's fair for the customer, and. Mm -hmm. You know, we've the the market has changed a lot over those years, and and now Mead has made the changes to kind of catch up with what customers expect. Sure, and it really we've changed a lot about our our attitude in terms of support, in terms of uh, you know uh, providing top service for for our product, customer service, which I've been a part of for for nearly twenty five years. You know, we've had to change the way that we do things, and and this time, you know, we have a very customer centric, you know, attitude towards supporting our product. And then in terms of product development, trying to meet what customers are looking for these days. So I go to, um, I get the opportunity to go up to Mead's headquarters pretty, pretty regularly. And um, obviously now there's a lot of life in the company. You see all the different departments. It's very well staffed. The warehouse is always completely full. So you don't see really any of the remnants of that time period. And it wasn't that long ago. But I'm curious, back then when that was happening, Scott, did did it feel like this would ever be a reality? Or did it feel like it was it was on its way out? Well, I think that, you know, certainly, you know, things were getting challenging. And at the time, we were a publicly owned company. And there were a lot of responsibilities that, you know, to shareholders and things like that, that were factors in, in mm -hmm. decision making and things sure. that, uh, you know, guided the direction the company was going in. And, 
you know, and unfortunately at the time with the, the, uh, the recession in 2008, 2009, yeah. you know, it just all kind of imploded. Uh, and there were a lot of factors, you know, that contributed to that. But I think with the, you know, change in ownership that took place in 2013, uh, change in management with the, uh, you know, addition of, uh, sorry, with the addition of Victor and, you know, new leadership, you know, that really has changed the way the, you know, the company is being run as well as, you know, putting, you know, money back into product development and, uh, you know, taking things in a positive direction. Yeah, because I guess it doesn't happen unless you have something to keep people interested. You can't just keep pushing the same thing over and over. You've got to have something new to, you know, keep renewing that excitement about the brand and giving people reasons to stay loyal. Well, I think that's one of the biggest things is this this change from just going out to a star party and looking through an eyepiece sure. as opposed to, like you speak of, the shareable experience of being able to take pictures. Yeah. You know, we find now, you know, that people just want to use their smartphone. We had, mm-hmm. uh, back during the eclipse, we had a parking lot event and everybody wanted to come up and take a picture with their smartphone. And- well, Victor and Tony still use uh, film cameras, so they've <laughs> they've got these these huge so when you say smartphone describe to them what that is <laughs> oh now okay all right then let me just stop that right there <laughs> i'll have you know that my motorola razor does just fine <laughs> yeah are you still carrying around that car battery in the backpack to power that phone you have yeah but i think you're right though i mean if you make it accessible you see exactly that, that people want this, but it it hasn't always been accessible. And um, I think that Mead has done a phenomenal job over the last year of finding ways to innovate on both fronts, the front of, you know, the the imager that's like a hardcore imager that wants something that they can really push their their uh, quality to top notch levels. But then also people that want to get into this, but they want it to be a shareable experience, like you're saying with a cell phone. Let me hold my cell phone up to this and take a picture of the moon. It's all I need. Absolutely. And those, you know, those are very easy things for people to do. And then with the addition of the LPIG, you know, you can step up to doing the taking nice shots of the moon and brighter planets real easily. And, you know, that's all part of the direction that the hobby is going is more and more people want to do photography and imaging. So, you know, we're changing our focus and our direction to be more of an imaging company. But the one thing that Mead has always done that, you know, we want to continue to do is be kind of a one-stop shop. We want to be able to buy an entire package that's all Mead product, whether it be imaging accessories to eyepieces, to cameras, to various mounts, all kinds of different optical tubes, whether it be reflectors, uh, APOs, uh, you know, ACF optical tubes. You have your choice and you can do it all at Mead. It's almost like you've you've sold this stuff before, Scott. Yeah, <laughs> like you've been you around a bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, here, what, what do you work uh, at? Yeah, yeah. yeah, what are you? Who is this guy? Yeah. Uh, what are you guys thinking about at Mead going forward? What are you guys uh, planning for the future? What are you most most excited about? Well, we would like to continue on uh, with the uh, uh, focus on on imaging, for one thing. Uh, I do believe that that's where the general public or the hobby is 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 going to. We want to make things uh, simpler and easier to use. That's uh, those are the things that we'd like to do. Is that you know, to keep things simple? That way, you get more, you know, satisfied people getting into the hobby, not just. 
taking a telescope and putting it in a closet, you know. So we want people to make good use of their telescope and actually have the same experience that, you know, most, uh, you know, amateur astronomers do. You know what the best telescope is, guys? The best telescope is the one that gets used. So, yeah, you want it to be easy to use, easy to set up, or at least familiar to set up. So I couldn't agree more. This sounds like, well, so it sounds like we got a lot of uh, exciting things to look forward to then from me. Dustin, would you agree that imaging is the future of the hobby? I think absolutely. I just think that um, when you're starting to see things in color, it changes everything. And not only in color, but in high resolution. And more importantly, even than that, it's the shareable experience. Being able to take this and keep it with you 24-7 and tell people, instead of just describing what you saw, you know, pulling out your cell phone and showing them exactly what you saw, I think that changes everything. Awesome. Okay. Well, I think we should probably cut it here. We are a little bit over our time, but I wanted to thank our guests today, Victor Anaceto from, he's the president of Mead Instruments. Also with him is Scott Byram, the director of sales. Thank you guys so much for taking time out to talk to us today. It's been exciting to hear about Mead. Thanks, Tony. Thank you, Tony. Thanks, Dustin. Thanks for having us. All right. Well, we'll, we'll give this episode a wrap. I want to thank all of you guys for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk was produced by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California, in partnership with Deep Astronomy. Please send feedback and questions to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.